Well, that's a little taste of heaven right there, but not enough. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18, where we're going to be speaking on heaven this morning, an unspeakable reward. And if you're thinking, well, if it's unspeakable, why are you going to be speaking about it? Um, you're going to find out in a little bit. But let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we come before you glorying in your goodness to us, the sacrifice of your son on our behalf, that we are unworthy sinners. We are thankful that he lived a perfect life, that he willingly offered himself up on the cross under the hands of sinful men and died the death that we should have died. Father, we are also thankful that three days later he rose again from the dead, showing and proving that he had conquered death so that all who through faith in him might not fear death, but know that they would be resurrected to eternal life. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your blessings. Father, we think of the Christian life, and though uh, following Christ often uh, comes with a great price, and we have to go through trials and turn from things and sacrifice things, yet our sacrifice to Christ is nothing compared to his sacrifice to us. So, Father, this morning, as we look at your word, as we read it, as we consider it and its application to our lives. May each of us take these truths to our own heart and may we leave here changed for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Jesus said to a crowd of people in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory of his father with his holy angels. Those are some pretty strong demands to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. Have you denied yourself to follow Christ? Have you died to your own self-will, your own self-interest in submission to the lordship of Christ, which Jesus describes figuratively as taking up your cross daily and following him? Have you lost your life, given up your life, that you might gain it? Have you considered that your eternal soul is worth more than all of the world? It's pretty amazing, isn't it, to think about how many people have killed each other through the ages over money and property and power. When Jesus says, what would you give in exchange for the world? Would you, would you exchange your soul And the whole point there, your soul is more valuable than all of the world. Are you ashamed of Christ or are you bold to speak of him? Are you willing to talk of Jesus, even though some people think, well, you're probably a Jesus freak and you're probably one of those born again Christians and you're one of those hypocrites who pretends to be one thing and is another You know, there's this interesting paradox that a lot of Christians don't ever quite get straight in their mind. Salvation is the free gift of God, isn't it? And you can't earn your salvation. You can't 
work for your salvation. You can't make God like you or pay the price of your own sin. That is all done by Christ. And that's why salvation is the free gift of God. But the cost of discipleship is everything. Once you are saved by grace, it costs you everything to follow Christ. And this is what we are going to be looking at in our text this morning. If you were here last week, you remember the rich young ruler who was young, and we know he's young because he ran up to Jesus. Um, Jesus is about ready to go on a journey and go to the next village or city or whatever. And uh, here comes this young man, uh, you know, breathing hard and good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he is, he's, he's wound up. He's got money. He's got youth. He's got ambition. He's got desire. What can I do to gain eternal life? Tell me, tell me, you want me to like start an orphanage? Give to the synagogue? Do a bunch of good works? What do you want me to do, man? I'm young. I've got my whole life ahead of me. What can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus sees through the young man's problem because really there was nothing that young man could do to save himself. But Jesus then tries several approaches to try and get him to see what is necessary for him to gain eternal life. And he says, why do you call me good for no one is good but God alone? And, and the rich young ruler missed it. See, Jesus is either saying, I'm not good or I'm God. But he missed it. He missed it. And in saying that, Jesus also wanted him to realize that if only God is good, that means you're not. You are a sinner in need of salvation. So he rattles off these commands and amazingly, he says, well, I've kept all those from my youth. No problem. Now what? And so he's, he doesn't realize Jesus is God. He doesn't realize he's a sinner. He thinks he keeps the commandments perfectly. And Jesus knows he has an idol in his life. And so he decides to try and show the man his need of salvation, that he is really an idol worshiper by, by getting him to make a choice between him and his idol. And so he says, this is what I want you to do. Take all your wealth, all your possessions, sell it all, distribute it all to the poor and come and follow me. And when the young, rich young ruler hears that, he turns his back on Jesus and walks away. Jesus then looking at him walk, walk away says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are, are blown away at this point. Their eyebrows are popping up and they're going, what? And then Jesus throws in, yeah, it would be easier to stuff a camel through the eye of a needle than to get a rich person in the kingdom of heaven. And now their jaws are dropping open. The text says they were very astonished that Jesus would say that. And then Peter says, well, then who can be saved? Why? Because in their minds, well, God is the one who gives riches. The, the scriptures make that clear. He is the one who gives us the ability to gain wealth. And so if God has given you a lot of wealth, God really likes you. Therefore, if you're rich, you're a shoe into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus just says, it's like trying to stuff a double back camel through the eye of a needle. It's exceedingly difficult. They won't lay back their ears. The humps get stuck. The hooves don't go through well. I mean, you know, it's impossible. 
But Jesus does give some good encouragement and says, well, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And that is such an encouragement to know. That God can stuff a camel through the eye of a needle and he can save rich man and has and will continue to do so. And while men's commitment and love of various sins are great, they are not greater than God's grace. And while it is impossible for any sinner, rich or poor, young or old, to earn their way, do something to get into heaven on their own, God's grace is sufficient. God saves men. Men can't save themselves. So the disciples are there and they're listening to this and they're watching this and they're looking at the rich young ruler walk away who moments before had just been, what can I do to gain an eternal life? And now he's walking away depressed because he doesn't want to part with his money. They hear Jesus's words, which are shocking. And then Peter who I think probably was had some Irish or Italian blood. He says, well, Lord, we, we did what that guy wouldn't do. And this is our text. Look at Luke 18, verse 28. Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will not receive many times as much as this in the age to come eternal life. There's three facts in this text concerning Christians, their sacrifices to follow Christ and God's blessings That should encourage us to lay all we have at Jesus' disposal in order to follow him. And the first is Christians sacrifice for the Lord. Look at verse 28. Peter says, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. In other words, what we see the rich young ruler was unwilling to do. We did. We did. The the word homes here, it's translated homes because that's the first thing Jesus mentions. But really it's, it's things, everything. As a matter of fact, that's how Matthew and Mark read. We have left everything to follow you. You remember what happened? Jesus called the disciples of the first, the fishermen, and they kind of followed him for a little bit, a couple of days, and then they went back to fishing. You know, Jesus wakes up in the morning. It's like, where are they? He goes back and then they're fishing again. So he has to do the little miracle and uh, convince them that he, this isn't like a part-time job. This is a full-time thing. And Luke chapter 5 verse 11 says that after Jesus taught in Peter's boat, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. They left their boats, their nets, their oars, everything to follow Jesus. Right after that, we learn about Matthew, um, the tax collector, who, of course, purchases a very lucrative uh, franchise from Rome to collect taxes. He's rich. He's wealthy. He's powerful. And Jesus comes up to him and says, Matthew, come on, you're going to follow me. And Luke 5, 28 says, and he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. He left his franchise, his means of income, his home. He left everything and then wandered around with Jesus for three years. And the rest of his life gave his life for the cause of the gospel. 
Though Luke doesn't record all that Peter said, the parallel text in Matthew 27 tells us what else Peter said. It's implied when Peter says, we have left all to follow you. And you can kind of get in there. There's a little, so what is in there for us? Well, it's stated right out in Matthew. So then what will there be for us? In other words, listen, we've sacrificed a lot like that rich young ruler was unwilling to do. And so, you know, I mean, what's in it for us? I mean, what are we going to get? You said, you know, this is how he's going to gain eternal life. Do we get that? Or what do we get out of this? And if you are a Christian, you have made sacrifices to follow Christ. I know people in this congregation who have passed up great paying jobs because they knew it wouldn't honor the Lord. They get this offer, just killer good money. And they're just thinking, oh man, that sounds so good. And then they say, but you're going to have to do this and that. It's like, oh, that wouldn't honor the Lord. I don't think I can do that. Maybe you are alienated from your family and friends because of Christ. Maybe you have faithfully given to the Lord for years and given to missions for years. And you keep setting aside money and sacrificing and sacrificing. And you're just wondering, I, you know, I, I, I hope this is worth it. I mean, what will there be for you who have sacrificed to the Lord? Will it be worth it in the end? Will, will, will you, when you get to heaven, have regrets that you sacrificed for Christ? You know, will you be sitting there in your glorified state saying, you know, I should have kept far for myself and I should have invested more in things destined to perish. Or will you be thinking to yourself, I should have sacrificed more for the Lord and the cause of Christ and the things of eternity. I mean, what will matter most, eternal things or things destined to perish? Look at verse 29, and he said to them, truly, I say to you, and just stop there. Whenever Jesus says truly, he says, this is absolutely certain. What I'm going to tell you is an absolute certainty. What is that absolute certainty? The middle of verse 29 continues. There is no one who has left, and just stop there, He now gives five examples. There's a couple more in uh, the parallel text. Jesus gives five examples. Now consider these examples because they are the things that people treasure most. Homes and relationships. The closest relationships. And first Jesus says, they leave their houses. I mean, have you ever left a house for Christ? Think about it. You know, when we lived in Idaho, we property there is it's a lot different than here. It's bigger and cheaper. So we had a nice house, double story, triple car garage, big yard, greenhouse, perfect garden. I just I just finished tweaking it up. And there was this guy who calls from Burbank. I won't give you his name, but his initials are Lou Stone. And, um, and the next thing you know, we're moving to California. And, and I remember telling my wife, my wife says, well, do you think we'll be able to get a house down there? I said, no way. In Southern California? Are you kidding? From Idaho to Southern California? It's like, no, we'll, we'll probably have to just get an apartment close to the church. And so that's what I was going to do. And I was trying to figure out whether I should like sell all my gardening tools and just like, you know, really scale down. Cause I thought we were going to move into an apartment. I mean, that's what it was going to be. But by the grace of God, we got to trade our new big house for a 50 year old repossessed one. And that's where we live. 
And, you know, we, yeah, we had to, you know, we liked living near the mountains and the lakes and skiing and clean air and hunting and family and the three churches we helped plan and all the friends that we had because of that. We liked that. We were very comfortable there. It was very, and some people even came up to us because, you know, they knew that, you know, I'd been working on this house and got it all fixed up like I wanted it. And they said, man, you just got it fixed up and now you're leaving it. I said, yeah. And people say, well, how can you do that? It's like, well, how can we not? You know, when God calls you, when he wants you to go someplace, you go. And his grace is sufficient. Like Eric was talking about, his grace, his sovereignty enables you to go wherever he wants you to go. And you go. And that's what you have to do. I mean, we were not like those in, you know, spoken of in Hebrews 10, 34, who accepted joyfully the seizure of our property. I mean, it's not like because we were Christians, they plundered our house. We just exchanged an, a newer one for an older one. But some people have lost their houses. They've lost everything for the cause of Christ. And the question is, is it worth it? Secondly, look at the middle of verse 29. Jesus also mentions leaving your wife. You can throw in husband in there. You know, I experience a little bit of this when I travel. I would rather be with my wife all the time. But, you know, I, I go speak places in different parts of the world. And when I'm there, I miss my wife. And she has to do without me. It was really funny. It was, we lived in Idaho. Every time I went on a place, there was a huge snowstorm. And my wife had to shovel the driveway over and over again. Um, and, you know, we would talk about that. I like shoveling snow. And so, you know, but she had to do that. And we had to be apart. And that's the way it is. There was a sacrifice. Others have sacrificed a significant amount more because either their husband or wife, when they become a Christian, doesn't want anything to do with them. Some have been divorced because their spouse says, listen, I don't like you now that you've changed and become a Christian. You're so much different than you were before. I don't like you anymore. Others say, well, I'm going to stay married to you, but I'm just going to live my life and... They basically have a business relationship. There's no affection. There's no love. Why? Because they've decided to follow Christ and their spouse says, sorry. Thirdly, Jesus mentions those who have left brothers. You know, maybe the Lord has moved you away from your brothers who you really enjoy. Or maybe when you committed yourself to Christ and you started talking to your brothers, your brothers said, hey, I don't want anything to do with you. I've known people and there are people in this congregation who's whose siblings hate their guts because they're Christians, because they're more honest, more kind, more loving, more patient, and because the Christians are concerned about their eternal soul. They hate them for it. Is it worth it? Jesus, fourthly, says there are those who have left parents. You know, maybe you felt called to a ministry or seminary or missions and and all of a sudden you you have to move away from your parents and though you love your parents and though you have a good relationship with your parents and maybe your parents are christians and they're really supportive you've got to leave and you can't be around them anymore and maybe you have grandkids and they don't really like it that you're taking their grandkids away from them and you have to do that there's a sacrifice involved the following christ other people have lost their parents and left their parents because their parents say, listen, it's either your religion or us. Sorry, I got to follow Christ. They say, okay, then show up when you've come to your senses again. Is it worth it? Is it worth all that? 
Finally, Jesus says, some of you have left children. You know, maybe you're, you're older and all of a sudden you just feel the call of God in your life to do some missions work or to move someplace or to do something for the Lord in your last years rather than burning up all your money on yourself. And so all of a sudden your, your children are like, well, you're leaving? But who's going to be our free babysitter? And you leave your children. You love your children and you love babysitting your grandchildren. But you got to do what God calls you to do. The parallel text in Matthew and Mark also mentions sisters and farms. You know, why would anyone leave their most precious relationships, their most valuable worldly possessions? And Jesus says... They would do that, at the end, look at the verse 29, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Why would anybody leave their most treasured things for the sake of the kingdom of God? And Matthew says, for my name's sake, Jesus says, and Mark, for the gospel's sake. They're all synonyms to do what Christ wants you to do. You see people indulging in sin and making money hand over fist by crooked business practices, driving luxury cars, living in giant houses, gobbling up the world whole like a snake. And then you're struggling by because you have to do your own thing and you have to be honest and you have to report your taxes and you have to, you know, submit to this rule and this law. And even though no one notices, you know, God notices. And so you've said no to drunkenness and immorality and lying and materialism and sinful pleasures and the world just gets to have all they want of that. And sometimes you may think, is it, is it worth it? If you look at your life and you don't see constant sacrifices for the Lord, then you need to take that as a little bell going off in your head. You need to examine your life because Christians sacrifice for Christ. Every one of them on a regular basis. If you are a fair weather Christian and you only pull out into the waters of Christianity when the sun is shining and the wind is gentle, you're no Christian. You're pretending, you're deceived, you're deluded. You need to remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and following. You need, all you need to do is hate your father and mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, even your own life, or you cannot be his disciple. That's pretty clear. You have to take up your cross daily, die to self, count the cost off and pay the cost to follow Jesus. You must be willing to give up all your possessions, Jesus says. I mean, he uses every hyperbole in there. And of course, he's talking about comparisons. He's not saying you need to take a vow of poverty. And he tells you other places to love and honor your father and mother and brothers and sisters. His whole point is if it comes between me and them, they go. If it comes between leaving me or leaving them, you leave them. That's the whole point. When the apostle Paul was going to Jerusalem, the Gentile believers feared for his life because they knew, Paul, listen, hey, wait, 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 don't go to Jerusalem. That's where they beat you. They want, they got people there who hate your gut. They're going to kill you if you go back to Jerusalem. And you remember what Paul said in Acts 21, 13? What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? He says, for I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Is that you? I mean, we sang it earlier. Luther penned it out. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. 
But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's what Luther lived for. He put his life on the line every single day. He was a wanted man. Paul said in Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. He says, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Is that you? Moses, the author of Hebrews says, and this is amazing, chose to endure ill treatment. This is Hebrews 11 verses 25 and 26. Chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin and consider the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Now just think about this right now. You're thinking, okay, okay. What I've got here is I've got the reproaches of Christ and ill treatment with the people of God or the treasures of Egypt. Hmm. What am I going to choose? And what did Moses choose? Ill treatment with the people of God and reproaches for the name of Christ. He turned his back on the world. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, the apostle John describes believers who did not love their life even when faced with death. Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If you are one of Jesus' sheep, he knows you, you hear his voice so as to obey and you follow him. True sheep hear Jesus' voice and obey it. And Jesus, Jesus knows them personally, he has an intimate relationship with them. And being sheep, they follow their shepherd wherever he leads. Is that you? A Christian is not one who merely gathers on Sunday and sings a few songs and throws some money into the plate. Mormons do that. Jehovah's Witnesses do that. Christian science practitioners do that. The cults do all of those things. And oftentimes the cults far outshine Christians in their zeal and sacrifice for the Lord. Why? Because they are doing it for a different reason. You say, well, they're trying to earn their salvation. Okay, think about this. Who should be more zealous? The person who's trying to earn their salvation, follow a false religion, or the person who loves the Lord? Every young man goes on a mission. Every member goes door-to-door evangelism. Everybody has to give 10%. I mean, they are zealous in doing, 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 and trying to gain favor with God. Only to be disappointed in the at the end, they sacrifice so much for nothing. Thomas Watson in the Godly Man's Picture writes, quote, The Jews did not spare any cost in their idolatrous worship. No, they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch, Jeremiah thirty two, thirty five. They were so zealous in their idol worship that they would sacrifice their sons and daughters to their false gods. How far the purblind heathen went in their false zeal. When the tribunes of Rome complained that they wanted gold in their treasuries to offer to Apollo, the Roman matrons plucked off their chains of gold and rings and bracelets and gave them to the priest to offer up sacrifice. Were these so zealous in their sinful worship? And will you not be zealous in the worship of the true God? End quote. That is something to think about. That is something to think about. I mean, imagine, you know, we get the offering in the morning 
And it goes around and every single woman here plucks off every piece of gold off her ear, every bracelet, her wedding ring, everything just pitches it in. You're thinking, my wedding ring? That's the whole point. The Roman matrons worshiping a pagan god were willing to do that. How many who profess to be followers of Christ will give up little, if any, of their sins and vices, let alone their time and their money and their talents and their gold and, God forsake, their houses to follow Christ? You need to look at your life and you need to ask yourself, am I sacrificing for Christ? Is it a part of my life? If, if you look at your life and you're always thinking someone else can do it, someone else can do it, you don't know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. He doesn't just want you as a title on earth. He wants you living for him, following him, sacrificing for his cause. I mean, can you say with Peter, we have given up all to follow you, Lord. Some of you are just inches, millimeters away from the kingdom, but there you just can't quite bring yourself to turn from your sin. You just won't give up that. You don't want to go to hell and you want to call yourself a Christian, but you're not going to give up your sin. And Satan keeps telling you, oh, you could be a Christian and still live in sin. That is a lie. That is a lie. You must lay all on the altar to Christ or you cannot be his disciple. And some of you need to choose. Are you going to serve Christ or worship Baal? Choose this day whom you will serve. If Christ be Lord, serve him. If Baal be God, then serve him. You can only have one Lord. Some of Jesus' so-called disciples tried that one on him. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That doesn't work. I'm not your Lord unless you do what I say. The scriptures make it clear that no one will get their names written in the Lamb's book of life because they did good works and sacrifice. However, all those whose names are written sacrifice. You come by grace alone through faith alone. You live laying all on the altar as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God. And you have to make those sacrifices. And the question is, is it worth it? Or you can say what Peter said. What will there be for us? For we have left all to follow you. And this brings us to our second point. Look at verse 30. Christians will be blessed in this life for their sacrifices. Jesus says to those who have given up all to follow him. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who will not receive many times as much at this time. Now, just stop that at this time. So so what are you saying? Are you saying that if I give up a lot for Christ, Jesus will bless me many times as much in This life? No, I'm not telling you that. That's what God's telling you in the text. And I just know that the prosperity preachers swoop down on this text with talons out to grab onto it. Listen, if you give to my ministry, God will bless you. You'll be healthy and wealthy. That's not what it's talking about. 
The kind of people that Jesus is talking about here have been burnt at the stake, have been tortured to death, are right now rotting in prisons in different places of the world because of Christ. You say, well, then what is it? What is, where are all these blessings that are many times, that are worth many times more than the, the things that we sacrifice? I just sat in my study and started thinking about some. I just pumped down 12 here because there's 12 apostles. I don't know. Um, it just seemed good. But just think about these. What kind of blessings do Christians enjoy now because they know Jesus? Here are 12 of them. One, the thrill of knowing that when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. That's pretty good for starters. Or secondly, the joy of knowing that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. That's pretty good. Or third, the anticipation that those whom he predestined, he also called and those he called, he also justified and those he justified, he is also going to glorify. Romans eight twenty nine. That's good. The comfort of knowing that when we pray, we can receive the peace of Christ, which surpasses all, all comprehension. And it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 7. Or fifthly, the confidence of knowing that God is sovereign, declaring the end from the beginning From ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Isaiah 46.10. Or six, the value of knowing that we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 18.24. Or seven, the blessing of having the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. First Thessalonians 2.13. Or eight, the surety that in every trial, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance for every good deed. Second Corinthians 9.8. It doesn't matter how much you sacrifice, God is going to give you an abundance for every good need. And nine, the amazement of being saved for eternal purposes, even though you are a sinner, even though you are unworthy, even though you don't deserve it, you're saved by grace and then you become God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. Think about that. That is is amazing. Ten, the surety of knowing that whenever you need wisdom, all you need to ask God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to you. And leaven, the security of knowing that God is sovereign and works all things out for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans eight twenty eight or 12, the hope that now we are the children of God and has not appeared as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him just as he is. First John three twelve. That's just 12 of them. I could, I could kill you off with verses like that. I could keep reading verses like that till you're all sleeping on the pew. Listen, believer, don't be deceived. Most who drive nice cars and live in big houses who have lots of money are miserable. 
those who indulge themselves in immorality and pornography and drugs and alcohol and materialism and the things of this world are walking cocoons with nothing inside. You look at them, you can see it in their eyes. You know, one moment they're trying to give you, oh yeah, it's so great. I got drunk last night. I drank six packs of beer, you know? And you look at them and you look at their eye and they're just hollow in there. They're going from one cheap thrill to another, one temporary pleasure to another. They're not happy. They don't have peace. They don't know God. When I was growing up, there was a little slogan that said, happiness is, you still see it around on bumper stickers and, you know, license plates. Happiness is golf or, you know, fishing or whatever. No, it's not. Yeah, you can get a little bit of pleasure out of those things. But real happiness comes in knowing Christ and having eternal life. Fanny Crosby speaks of the blessings that come, even though we sacrifice for Christ and her hymn, take the world, but give me Jesus. And the words are as follows. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abides forever through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Sweetest comfort of my soul with my Savior watching over me. I can sing though billows roll. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Let me view his constant smile. Then throughout my pilgrim journey, light will cheer me all the while. Take the world, but give me Jesus in his cross. My trust shall be tell with clearer, brighter vision face to face. My Lord, I see. And the chorus is, oh, the height and breadth of mercy. Oh, the length and breadth of love. Oh, the fullness of redemption, pledge of endless life above. And the whole song is about, yeah, I'm going through this life. Yeah, I'm sacrificing. Yeah, I'm giving things up. Man, I got eternal life coming. You know, and if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, I'm not sacrificing for Christ. I don't know why. I think I know Jesus. I don't know why. Listen, if a father is by some river with his son, turns his head, and all of a sudden he hears this plunk and sees his son floating down the river, but he's not a good swimmer. And so he just says, son, I'm sorry you're going to drown. I'm not a good swimmer. It's been good. Knowing you. Is that what he does? No, he jumps in. He said, well, why would he do that? He'd be risking his life. Uh, he'd be, he'd be risking everything to, to rescue his son. And believe me, when he's in the water and he's thrashing, trying to catch his son and keep his son from drowning, he's not thinking of his plasma TV or his car or his house or his job or his pension fund. He's thinking of one thing, saving his son. Why? Because he loves his son. That's why. You know, a mother's going for a little walk around the block and her stroller with her baby and some big nasty dog comes out, teeth bare. And you know, the woman's not into like, you know, having a confrontation with a dog. The woman's not into, you know, here, let me go toe to toe with a Rottweiler. But believe me, she gets in between that dog and her son or her daughter who's ever in that, that baby carriage. And even if the dog bites her, she's not going to let 
that dog get to her child. Why? Because of love. I have a friend in Idaho, used to be my hunting partner when I used to do that. And he was heard this screaming and there were two children out in the middle of the street and one was being attacked by a police trained German shepherd dog that had gotten out of its fence. And he ran over there, put it in a headlock, grabbed it and the dog started to bite him. I said, so what'd you do? He says, I grabbed my fist and I pretty much shoved it down its throat. I held it there in a headlock until the police came. He says, it scratched up my knuckles a little bit. He says, that dog's not going to get the best of me. And they thought, well, why did you do that? Well, obviously it wasn't fun. (laughs) Obviously it wasn't convenient. Obviously it was not something that he thought, you know, I think I'm going to get up and go toe-to-toe with the police-trained German shepherd. But he did. Why? Because he had love for those kids. That's why. Love is what makes you sacrifice for others. That is the definition of love. Love is sacrificing to do what is best for other people according to the word of God. So if you're looking at your life and saying, well, I'm not sacrificing the Lord, then you don't love him. And that's the problem. That is the problem because Christians sacrifice for Christ and they discover that in their sacrifices, they are blessed far more than they give up. And they're fine with that. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Third, Christians will be blessed in the life to come for their sacrifices. Look at the latter half of verse 30. Jesus not only promises blessing in this life, but also says, and in the age to come, eternal life. Eternal life. As we learned in our study of Hebrews 11, as you learn in reading the scriptures, as you learn in church history and Christian biographies, Christians have this blessed hope, don't they? They have this hope that is just you, just, you can't pound it out of them. You can't burn it out of them. You can't torture it out of them. What is that? The hope of eternal life. That's it. That's it. Paul says in Romans 5, 2, that we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We can't wait to see God in his glory and just be like Jesus. We just exult. We just ah, can't wait for that. In Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25, Paul says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what they already see? But we hope for what we do not see when with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. You know, we talk about being saved, but think about it. We're still sinners. We still suffer the consequences of our sin. We still live in a sin-cursed world around sinful people. So what's the salvation about? Well, we're just getting a taste. We're getting a taste of eternal life. Now you say, well, what what, what do you mean by eternal life? I mean, what is eternal life anyways? Why would we hope in it? And what is the whole value of this hope? Oh, we could go into it. There's about 40 texts in the New Testament I looked up about this. That just would be really fun, but we just can't go through them. I'll just give you one. I love Hebrews 6, verses 18 and 20, where it talks about we have as this hope like an anchor of the soul. Our hope is an anchor of the soul. Do you understand what that is? Uh, you know, when, you, when I was a commercial fisherman and we would, we would drop anchor, it's a big piece of metal. And there's a couple different kinds of anchor designs, but they're all made to do the same thing. 
dig into the ocean floor. You know, a lot of times people see those anchors. If I said, draw a picture of an anchor, you'd probably draw the little thing down with the tooth hooks and the points on the end, right? Because that's what most people think when they think of an anchor. But what they don't do is they don't draw the crossbar, which is perpendicular to the points in the anchor. And you know why the crossbar's there? So when it hits the ocean bottom, the crossbar causes it to be on a point. So when the boat pulls on it, it digs in. And then once it digs in, it's secured to the ocean bottom, both sure and steadfast. And though the water is constantly in a state of flux and the wind's moving and the tides are moving, the boat is anchored both sure and steadfast. And so the hope we have eternal life, the, our relationship with Christ is that anchor both sure and steadfast. And no matter what the world throws against us, we don't need to be moved. It can't get us un broken loose from that hope both sure and steadfast it's unfordable and you say well what is eternal life my favorite definition is that definition that Jesus gives in John chapter 17 verse 3 where in his high priestly prayer he says And this is eternal life, that you would know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's the beginning of eternal life, having a relationship with God. A lot of people think of eternal life as, well, living in eternal, uh, eternally in a conscious state. People in hell are in an eternal conscious state. People who perish in a lake of fire are suffer torment, Revelation 14, 11 says, day and night forever and ever. So it's just not merely being conscious forever, though that's included. And it's not living forever like, you know, you found the, the cup, the mythological cup of the Holy Grail. And if you drink it, you live forever. Or, you know, you're hiking through some jungle and all of a sudden you hacked your way and uh, found the tree of life. And, you know, the cherubim was sleeping there because he had been guarding it for so long. He fell asleep and you sneak past and eat some of it. And now you get to live forever. That's not what eternal life is either. Eternal life is the quality of life that a Christian has because they have a personal relationship with the God of creation. They know Jesus, not just know about him, not just have mental understanding and not just a mental ascent. I know who Jesus is. I know what he did. I know he's the son of God. Demons know that. Demons know that. It's having Jesus as your friend to be reconciled with God through the blood of the cross so that you know Jesus and he knows you and you are friends. And then you say, yeah, I know Jesus and other people may know of Jesus, but you know him and they look at you like what? You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I I know so and so, you know, I, I met this famous movie star i shook hands with the president or i met this congressman you can say i know god and it's fun to see people's face like what yeah the god of creation god almighty jehovah jireh you know the judge of the living and the dead his son jesus christ i know him and then what are they going to think about you oh he's kind of one of those people too much lsd in college And the scriptures tell us that because we have this eternal life, we will be resurrected. And Paul even says in 1 Timothy 6, 12, that we need to lay a hold of that eternal life, that relationship with Christ and God. We need to grab onto it. 
and cling to it. And every Christian knows this. They're always doing best when they're clinging to Jesus. And they're always doing their worst when they're not. And all the believers have to sacrifice in this life. They're more than willing to do it because of those blessings they receive, because of their love for the Lord. And they're they're not going to trade the world for that. Now listen, but what about in eternal life? What do you get there? Well, this is the part of the sermon that is an unspeakable reward. You know, this, this week, I just, in my quiet times, I just went and just read passages and passages about heaven. And though the Bible doesn't tell us very much, it does tell us to fix our minds on the things of God and the things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty to get your mind out of this sin cursed world and get them up into heaven. Do that. Do that with me right now. See the angels around the throne. How many? Oh, just nothing. Myriads upon myriads and ten thousands upon ten thousands. Think about that. Think about the cherubim who stand as, you know, sentinels. They're guarding the holiness of God with four wings. And then you have the six-winged seraphim who, who cry out day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you see Jesus with his hair that's white like wool and his eyes like a flame of fire and his face radiant with light and his feet like burnished bronze. And he's looking at you and he's smiling. And he's not thinking, I know what you did. You caused me a lot of grief. I had to go down that sin-cursed pit and die for you. He's not thinking of that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He sees you as royalty, as his brothers and sisters in Christ, if you know him. Not only that, see all of the rest of the unworthy sinners beside yourself and think about just how incredible it would, it's going to be in heaven as you are there with all those other unworthy sinners who are now transformed into saints, holy ones, because of what Jesus did. And you talk to them and you say, yeah, I remember when we did this and remember when we did that. And you dialogue and you communicate and you remember the stories and you tell your testimonies and you get to know all the angels by name. It only takes you millions and millions of years, but you do it because you got time. And you remember perfectly when you say, oh, here's that one angel coming. What was his name? You don't remember that happens. That never happens. Praise God. If I don't have my wife with me, I'm in trouble. So yeah, you, you get to know that. And then you get to know all of these saints that, that some of you've read about. I mean, won't it be cool to meet the thief on the cross? Dude, man, you got in by the skin of your teeth. And he looks at you and goes, so did you. <laughs> and you just, you realize that, that you're all just sinners and you all were hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. And you're around all these other people who are hopeless and helpless. And now they're all in heaven because of what Jesus did for them. And they all just want to praise God and worship God as he's on the throne. And Jesus sees this mass of redeemed humanity from all the nations of the world, every skin color, every kind. He sees them all and he has saved them by his grace and they all worship him. Mm, mm. I hope you can see that. And I hope you can see that you're going to be royalty 
royalty, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You're going to rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom. You're going to judge angels. Think about that. Me? You. If you know Christ, you're going to judge angels. Paul says in first or yeah, first Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. You're going to be able to walk around heaven. You're going to see people. You're going to ask questions. You get answers. You're going to find all those things in heaven, but you're not going to be sinful. You won't have to struggle with the flesh. You won't have to worry about lust and pride and greed and selfishness and all those things we deal with every single day. Are you suffering for Christ as a believer? Are you sacrificing him? Listen to what Paul says to you from Romans 8. He says, and the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that we revealed in us. Think about that. It's not even worthy. Don't you even go there. You're not going to be up in heaven going, oh, I had to do this. And my wife left me. I don't know if I should, you know, I'd rather have my wife and be in hell right now. There's not going to be any of that. It's not even worthy. And as eternity progresses and millions and billions of years progress, you're not going to be regretting the little moments and fragments of suffering you had to give up. I mean, you remember what Paul gave up, right? He was rejected by the Jewish community. He was persecuted. He was stoned. He was beaten times without number. He received the 39 lashes, what, three times. He was shipwrecked. He was starved. I mean, all these things. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul describes these things as momentary light afflictions, which are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison think about it you can't even go there it's unspeakable the rewards the blessings of heaven and we're not going to be as some think you know like the two buzzards in the jungle book what you want to do i don't know what you want to do i don't start that again you know we're not going to be up in heaven wondering oh it's going to be so boring up there I mean, what are we going to do? Sit around plucking on our harps? No, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to be things to do and cities to oversee. There's going to be an unlimited eternal learning and growing and knowing God and serving and just things beyond your imagination. They're not going to be sitting around in boredom. Believer, hear what God says to you in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And they will wipe, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, and there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, 
It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God. He will be my son. So believer, let me ask you. You think it's worth it? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to have your word to remind us that the sufferings of this present world and anything we might sacrifice for the cause of Christ are not worthy to be compared with the glory we shall receive. Father, we are so humbled to even know that you would choose us and save us and send Christ to die for us. And then after saving us and giving us all we have and empowering us, then blessing us for eternity because what you have done through us. Father, it is, it's just amazing. It is unspeakable. It is that reward that we just cannot even imagine. And that's what your word tells us. It's far beyond all comparison to anything in this sin-cursed universe. All things are be made now. Father, if there's somebody here, and I know there is, who realizes they aren't sacrificing for Christ, they don't love the Lord, they don't want to give, they don't want to serve, and they don't want Jesus ruling over them. May they right now realize their, their soul is in danger. They're trading their soul for a small piece of this world. And Father, may they right now repent of their sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in him completely for salvation. And Father, begin a life of giving up all to follow you. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.